How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. For all scriptures God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished, for every good work. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us. He helps us to understand the Word, to put things together, to assimilate all the doctrines, and then to store them in our soul for future recall and application. So we must make sure that we are cleansed from sin in order to function in our priesthood, learning doctrine for application and growth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We thank you for the clarity of your word to give us insight into your plans for history, to know that ultimately there will be a culmination of all things in a kingdom unlike any that has ever existed, far beyond anything in our imagination where you will roll back part of the curse and in fact our Lord Jesus Christ will personally rule and reign here on planet earth. Father, we look forward to that time, and it is a time when we as believers in the church today will are being prepared for our future role to rule and reign with Him. We pray that we might be diligent in the study of Your Word, that we might continue to make doctrine the highest priority of our lives, for we need to be ready when that time comes. Father, we pray that You would challenge us with the things we study tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Ever since the fall, it seems like Man has a desire to um, blame his environment for his failures, for his faults, for his sins. As soon as uh, God confronted Adam and Eve in the garden, and uh, they ran and hid, but he sought them out, and he said, what's, uh, what's the problem? And uh, Adam said, it's the woman you gave to me. You know, he's blaming his environment already by passing the buck to other people. And from that time on, man has tried to create perfect environment, try to solve the sin problem or avoid the sin problem, avoid personal responsibility for failure. And uh, even today, there's all kinds of machinations among political parties, both here and, and internationally, to try to create some sort of workers' paradise and communism, some kind of social perfection through social utopianism, 19th century social liberalism, which is still alive and well, even though it has been demonstrated for at least 100 years to be a bankrupt system. When you don't have doctrine, you can't understand um, history and you can't understand the divine establishment institutions, and so all you're left with is some sort of, of a cheap substitution. So man is continuously trying to find a, or establish some sort of perfect kingdom, but that kingdom doesn't come until Jesus Christ returns bodily to the earth at the end of the tribulation. 
and that we are studying that period now, which is known as the millennium. We have our chart on the overhead of the prophetic end times, where it begins with the ending of the church age at the rapture. When we as believers in the church age are raptured instantly to be taken to be with the Lord in the clouds, we have a different destiny. Our destiny is heavenly. We go through the judgment seat of Christ where we are evaluated on the basis of our spiritual growth and advance during the church age. Some will gain great reward. Some will have little reward. Some will have no reward and enter the kingdom of heaven yet as through fire. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And then that will be concluded with the marriage of the Lamb where we the church, the bride of Christ, are married to our Lord Jesus Christ and as a corporate union. And then we will return with Him for the marriage feast on the earth at the second advent. That begins with the Lord Jesus Christ defeating His enemies at the Battle of Armageddon, which is really a military campaign that covers the entire a land mass of Israel. It starts off in the north at the valley of Jeho- at the valley of Jezreel, goes south through the valley of Jehoshaphat, and down across the Jordan into Edom. Uh, there's a transition period we've studied, and then Jesus establishes His kingdom on the earth, and that lasts for 1,000 years and is known as the millennium. And it is this period right here that we are studying now and should conclude our study of the millennium this evening. This is our Lord's destiny. It was announced by Gabriel in Luke 1, 31-33, when he told Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And that clearly was to be understood literally that he would be on the literal physical throne of his father David in Jerusalem and have a physical kingdom on the earth. We saw the time frame is clearly stated in the key passage on the millennium in Revelation 21 through 6. And then we begin to look at the Old Testament foundation for the kingdom, which in effect is the restoration of Israel to the land where God will finally fulfill all those promises He made to Israel in the Old Testament. And the thing that we that should have impacted us in the last two weeks is that the characteristic of the millennial kingdom is overwhelmingly Jewish. It has a strong ethnic Jewish flavor. Israel will be uh, regenerate. All of Israel will be regenerate. Every Jew born, every Jew that enters into the kingdom at that point will be saved. All unsaved Jews will die in the end of the tribulation. Only saved Jews enter the millennium and all of their offspring. Uh, Jeremiah says their children and their children's children will all worship the Lord, indicating that they all will exercise positive volition and gospel hearing in the, in the millennial kingdom, and they will all be saved. So Israel will finally be that nation that all other nations look up to. There will be no anti-Semitism in the, in the Millennial Kingdom. All nations will look to Israel. And Israel, in fact, as we'll see, will function as a priest nation. Finally, back in Exodus chapter 19, God announced to Moses that he was adopting Israel as a nation and there would be a kingdom of priests. They would be a priest kingdom. 
They've never functioned that way. They've never fulfilled their destiny to be a nation, a kingdom of priests who would serve as the go-betweens between the rest of the nations, the Gentiles, and God. And they will serve as that priest nation in the millennial kingdom. So all of these promises that have been made in the Old Testament will finally come true. Genesis 15:18 defines the fact that there's going to have the land that God promised and that the boundaries of the land are the river Egypt to the river Euphrates. Keep that in mind. We'll put a map up later on uh, showing those boundaries and how the tribal divisions are laid out in the millennial kingdom. So from the river Euphrates, river of Egypt to the river Euphrates, Genesis 15:18, that's stated again in Isaiah 27:12. The Lord will start His threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt. Then we looked at the land covenant. The land covenant where God reiterated to Israel that He would give them a specific piece of real estate. And in Jeremiah 23, 3 and 4, He reiterates the fact that He will bring them back to their pasture once they were scattered. He said in 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 16, He promised... Uh, a, to David, an eternal throne. He promised a dynasty. He promised a son. He promised an, an eternal dynasty on the throne of Israel. This is confirmed and reiterated in Ezekiel 34:23 through 25. There we read, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. David will be set over the nation in the kingdom. And, and these are all future tense verbs, by the way. This is not past, and by the time Ezekiel wrote, and approximately 595 B.C., David had been in his grave for 500 years. But yet, God says, David I will set over my people. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. And my servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They shall live on the land that I gave to Jacob my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David my servant shall be their prince forever. And then the passage goes on to talk about the regeneration of Israel, that all of Israel would be regenerate. And that's based on the New Covenant. So the Abrahamic Covenant promises will finally be fulfilled in the kingdom. The Land Covenant promises fulfilled. The Davidic Covenant promises fulfilled. And the New Covenant promises fulfilled. Remember, it's called the New Covenant because the Old Covenant would be temporary. The Old Covenant has passed away. So remember, everything associated with the Old Covenant, the priesthood, the temple, The Levitical sacrifices, all that is part and parcel of the old Mosaic Covenant. But that's all going to be done away with. In fact, according to Romans 16, Christ is the end of the law. He fulfilled the law. So the Mosaic law is replaced fully by the New Covenant. But, as we will see, the New Covenant is going to have its own temple, its own priesthood, its own sacrifices that are completely distinct from the the Mosaic and Levitical covenant. Temple, sacrifices, and priesthood. The New Covenant indicates, again, that all Israel will be saved. This is seen in the passage in Ezekiel 20, verse 40, where we read, On my holy mountain, and again and again, I want you to notice how 
Many times the prophets announce that it's the, the locus of the worship in Israel is the mountain of God. There will be this geologic upheaval that takes place when Jesus Christ returns at the second coming that will uh, elevate a large central plateau in Israel and it is at the top of that plateau where the millennial temple, which is uh, about a mile square, where the millennial temple will be constructed so everybody will literally be going up to the mountain of the Lord to worship in the millennium. And Ezekiel 20:40 says, On my holy mountain, on the high mountain of Israel, declares the Lord God, there the whole house of Israel, all of them. Doesn't want us to miss the point. It's not the whole house of Israel, some of them. It's very interesting. I, when I was teaching, started teaching on this, that all of Israel was not only saved at the beginning of the millennium, but as they went through the millennium from generation to generation, all subsequent generations would be saved. Somebody was asking me about that. And they said, how in the world can, can you say that all of Israel is going to be saved? How can God say every one of them is going to be positive? Unless he makes them. I said, well, God's not going to make them. And he knows in his omniscience, every one of them it will be saved. And so I thought, well, I need to, and, and I always do when certain questions come up, just to make sure I haven't lost my mind somewhere. I always go back and do, do, do a little more studying research just to make sure I didn't slip somewhere. And I pulled out a new book. It's a good book. Now, some of you, I know, have Dwight Pentecost's book, Things to Come, which is an old classic, a standard. Uh, it's a little, sometimes a little hard to get through. It's about two and a half inches, three inches thick. And a guy who was at Moody at the time, and now he's down at Philadelphia. Uh, used to be Philadelphia Bible College. Now it's Philadelphia Biblical University. Wrote a book called Understanding End Times Prophecy, Paul Benware. And it's very good. Excellent book, and it's a good update from, from Pentecost because he deals with a lot of current problems and current questions and like progressive dispensationalism and a number of challenges on the history of the rapture question. He incorporates things like uh, the discovery of uh, pseudo-Ephraim's quote back in the 4th century that the church would not go through the tribulation and other early statements to debunk the, the historical criticisms there. So it's a good book. But in his section where he deals with this, he says, well, this, is, this doesn't really mean all of Israel. When you have a word like that, it just refers to the corporate Now, it doesn't go into detail. The interesting thing is, is that when I look, he has a quote from another scholar to demonstrate his point. So he's going to find, that's, that's typical scholarly procedure. You go find somebody else who agrees with you and you quote them, especially if they're a big, larger name. And it was an article on, the, on, on uh, Israel written in, um, uh, I think it was written in a Feshrift. Now, a Feshrift is when you've been teaching for 50 years. Um, people who are your students get together and they all write scholarly papers and they collect them and bind them in a volume and they dedicate it to your honor. And there have been a number of professors at Dallas who've made it to that milestone in the last couple of decades. And this, they did one for Dr. Walbert and S. Lewis Johnson, who is a very well-known Greek New Testament professor at Dallas, wrote one on Israel. And he had a statement in there that all Israel means the majority of the nation. Now, if you don't know anything about theology, you're going to go, well, there, fine, I know Dr. Johnson, he's great, he's credible, he knows the Greek. What a tremendous source to indicate that all isn't all. But one has to remember that 
Dr. S. Lewis Johnson's a five-point Calvinist, and all never means all. <laughs> when, when, when Christ died for all, it doesn't mean he died for all. It means he only died for the elect. So you have to know, that's why it's so important that pastors be trained and have seminary education because when you read things, you have to be able to analyze the footnotes. Most people don't even look at footnotes. I'll never forget my first year at seminary and uh, went through, uh, I think they called it um, um, Introduction to the Bible. And now they've split it up into New Testament Introduction, Old Testament Introduction. But we had a professor in there who we would who would assign us about 25, 30 pages of hard, heavy, serious, knock-your-brains-out reading. And every time we came to class, there was always going to be a 10-question quiz. We knew that. Fortunately, it didn't start, class didn't start till 1 o'clock, and so we had lunch in this large auditorium, and there were usually five or six of us. And while we were stuffing our faces with our sandwiches, we would drill each other. And we knew that we had to know every piece of information in every single footnote because at least two of the questions on that exam would relate to some comment tucked away in, we're talking paragraph-long footnotes. So um, you have to learn to read the footnotes and you have to know who the players are and you have to have a scorecard. Otherwise, you're going to read stuff like that and not understand that, that there are things going on that aren't evident in the text that are um, of, of the book that are important. So this guy quoted Johnson to prove that all Israel wouldn't be all Israel, but for Johnson, all is never all. But the text here says the whole, God doesn't want us, the, the God the Holy Spirit didn't want us to make that mistake, so he repeated himself, and he said the whole house of Israel, all of them, will serve me in the land. Fulfillment of the land covenant, there I shall Accept them, and there I shall seek your contributions and the choices of your gift with all your holy things. So there will be regeneration of the nation in the millennial kingdom. Ezekiel 37:14 further states, And I will put my spirit within you, and you will come to life, and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it. That was our introduction. Then we went to the transition stage of the of the millennium, and we saw that there are five different things that happen during this transition period. There's a necessary cleanup operation at the end of the Armageddon campaign. It's, there's going to be such mass destruction. The blood will run as high as a as the bridle on a on a horse. That's about four to five feet high. And that means it's going to be an incredibly violent, destructive. Millions of people are going to die in this campaign that sweeps through the Middle East from Egypt all the way to Syria. And so it's going to take some time. In fact, there's a call for the carrion-eating birds to come and feed off of the corpses in order to try to, in order to speed up the uh, operation and to remove all of the, the dead bodies. You know, and there, that just came to my mind. And there's always somebody some sensationalist who comes up with... I remember a few years ago, there was a report that the, the, the uh, Armageddon must not be far away because they were noticing more and more carrion-eating birds in the Middle East. <laughs> There's just always somebody trying to find some angle to prove that we're in the end times. But there'll be a cleanup campaign. This is seen in, in the fact that, that uh, a total of 75 days are going to be needed for this transition from the end of the 
tribulation to accomplish everything that is necessary before the millennial kingdom is, in fact, inaugurated. Seventy-five days of transition. This is seen in Daniel uh, chapter 12, 11, and 12. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished, that's in the middle of the trib, uh, halfway through the tribulation with the abomination of desolation, there is, uh, that's the cessation there. And then it says there'll be 1,290 days, but we know from other passages that it's 1,260 days. So there's an extra 30 days there, and that would involve the cleanup. And then in verse 12 of Daniel 12, we read how blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. Well, from 1,260 to 1,335, you have uh, 75 days. And part of that's divided into a 30-day period and a 45-day period, and that's for cleanup and then judgment, the sheep and goat judgment of Matthew 25, where believers and unbelievers are separated and unbelievers are then assigned to uh, uh, Hades. Then we saw that all Jews are regathered to Israel. This is emphasized in numerous passages, again emphasizing the Jewish character of the millennium. Isaiah 10, 14, 11, 12, 27, 12, 43, 5, uh, and so on. Ezekiel 11:17. Probably the key passages are Isaiah 56, 8, Ezekiel 11, 17, and Ezekiel 20, 34. Fourth, we'll see there'll be a judgment of all tribulation survivors to determine their eternal destiny. This is the sheep and goat judgment of Matthew 25, 31 through 46, which is reiterated in Joel 3, 1, and 2, where it is stated in Joel 3, 2, that God will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's outside of Jerusalem. And there he conducts this judgment. And then fifth, we saw that in this transition, there's a resurrection of Old Testament saints and martyred tribulation saints to conclude what is called in the Scripture the first resurrection. Old Testament saints and martyred tribulation saints the earlier elements, the first fruits, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the rapture of church-age believers. And then the third company of resurrected saints is the Old Testament saints and the fourth company are mar- martyred tribulation saints. All that by way of review. So if you haven't been here in a couple of weeks, that was kind of a highlight. And you're probably wondering how you'll ever assimilate that as I went through it so fast. But you'll get the tape and uh, get that down. Then last time we looked at the characteristics of the millennium. The characteristics, first of all, it's phase one of a two-phase kingdom. Phase one of a two-phase kingdom. I read a minute ago from Daniel 12 where it states that the kingdom of, of the, the messianic kingdom will go on forever. It will last forever. But the messian, or the millennial kingdom, according to Revelation 20, only lasts for a thousand years. So there's two stages. Stage one is on this present earth. The curse will be rolled back. It'll be on this present earth. It'll last 1,000 years. End with the great white, with the Gog and Magog revolution, the great white throne judgment. And then God will destroy this present earth, according to 1 Peter chapter 3, in fire. And then create a new heavens and new earth. Establish the kingdom. The new Jerusalem will be on the earth. And that eternal kingdom goes on then forever 
and ever with no end. So phase one of the kingdom of God is the millennial kingdom. Phase two is the everlasting kingdom. We see this in Daniel 2.44. And in the days of those kings, that is those rebellious kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. And forever doesn't mean a thousand years. It means forever. Two, the purpose of the millennial kingdom. There are three distinct purposes for the millennial kingdom. Number one, to fulfill God's many promises to Israel. He's made these promises in the Old Testament, and for God to be God, He's got to fulfill them. That's why Satan tries to is, is anti-Semitic. That's why he tries to destroy the nation Israel, and that is why he um, is doing this, is to stop, is to, if he can destroy Israel, then it will prevent God from fulfilling those Old Testament promises. Second, it demonstrates that God alone can rule his creation. All the violence, all the bloodshed, all of the disorder, disarray that's going on in the world today demonstrates that the God of this age is incapable of bringing order to this age. And the God of this age, according to 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, is Satan. And he wants to be God. He want, desperately wants to prove that he can bring order and peace to this planet. But he has to deal with three or four, I think maybe it's up to six billion sin natures, and they all want to prove themselves to be God. So it's, uh, uh, he's the original control freak, and he cannot control the six billion sin natures on this planet. And then third, in the millennial kingdom, it would demonstrate that it is sin and an evil nature and volition, personal responsibility and personal choice, not the environment that is the cause of human misery, failure, and suffering. It's not the environment. It's not because of what your parents did or didn't do. It's not because of the kind of government you grew up under. It's not because of your education or lack of education. It's not because of your IQ or lack of IQ. It's not because of opportunity or lack of opportunity. It is because of decisions, individual decisions, personal responsibility, and individual sin natures that there is human misery, failure, and suffering. Now, third point. The government during the millennial kingdom will involve Jesus Christ reigning personally as king from the throne of David in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Jesus will reign as king from the throne of David in Jerusalem in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. This is seen in several passages. For example, in Psalm uh, 2, 6, and 7 we read, But as for me, I have God is speaking there. As for me, I have installed my king, second person of the Trinity there, the Lord Jesus Christ. I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Notice the term mountain again. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give thee the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with the rod of iron, thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. And that is a description of what Jesus Christ does in destroying the armies of the nations at the battle of Armageddon. 
Further, this is confirmed in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, where we read, A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and his government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, literally Yahweh of the armies, will accomplish this. And then uh, the, the passage we read earlier from Luke 1, 32 and 33. Uh, in Ezekiel, uh, then second, in terms of the government, it, we know that Israel will be united with Jerusalem as the center of the nation. The northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah are united once again, haven't been united since they divided when Solomon died in approximately 950 B.C., but they will be united with Jerusalem as the uh, capital, according to Ezekiel 37. And then third, Jesus will rule over Israel and Gentiles with David, literal resurrected David, as the prince over Israel. That's why I emphasized those passages earlier about David. David will be the prince over Israel. And Jesus is, is viewed as the king over, over David and over the nation. This is seen in Ezekiel 34, 23. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, some people think that my servant David here refers to the messianic reign of our Lord Jesus Christ, but there's um, there's clear indication that David seems to be referred to as a distinct person from uh, the Messiah in many passages in Ezekiel. So we've seen that it has the millennial kingdom is the first stage of a two-stage kingdom of God. It has a threefold purpose to fulfill Old Testament promises, demonstrate God alone can rule His creation, and demonstrate that, that uh, sin is the real problem, not environment. It's going to have a unique government with Jesus Christ on the throne. And fourth, it will be a time of world peace. There will be no world peace until Jesus Christ returns. And this is emphasized in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Now it will become about that in the last days... The mountain of the house of the Lord. That's that mountain that, that uh, comes up during the, after the second advent. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. So all the nations will worship through Israel. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For, the, Isaiah explains, the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be the center of the earth. And he will judge between the nations. So when nations have disagreements, they don't adjudicate them by going out on the battlefield. They go to the Lord Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. And, they, and he will render decisions for many peoples, and because there is no diplomacy by warfare, they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. So 
Clouswitz will be a true antique. And incidentally, for those of you who don't get out much, this is this verse is misquoted out of context, and it hangs in the entryway to the uh, United Nations, where they have this, this saying that nation will not lift up sword against nation, never again will they learn war. And of course, they're claiming that they can fulfill that. Make no mistake about it, the UN has claims to be have a messianic function. That's why the UN is, is functioning. I'm not saying it is Antichrist, but it is a type of Antichrist because it is trying to fulfill what only Christ, Jesus Christ, can fulfill, and that is bringing world peace. It is an enormous uh, endeavor that is pure vanity. Micah 4, 3 through 3 and 4 reiterates this same principle that he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. And each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid. It's a picture of complete peace and security for the mouth of the Yahweh of the armies has spoken. So it's a time of unprecedented world peace. That's the fourth characteristic. The fifth characteristic is the curse on the environment is rolled back. Remember when, when Adam and Eve sinned and God cursed the world and the, the curse is the consequences of their sin. The penalty was spiritual death, but that spiritual death reverberated through the creation. It changed uh, the uh, biological functions of, of men and animals. So that animals that were gramnivorous and herbivores became carnivores. It changed their digestive system. It changed their dental structure. It reverberated throughout the environment. The, you know, in one sense, the environmentalists are right. The human race has destroyed the environment, not the way they think. We destroyed the environment because Adam chose to sin. But the curse on the environment is rolled back, not completely. It's not going to be perfect environment like Eden, but it's going to be rolled back. It's probably going to be more perfect than the environment between the fall and the flood, but there will be um, there won't be any deserts, there won't be any meteorological disasters, there won't be any uh, threat of global warming or ice ages or tornadoes or hurricanes or blizzards. So uh, uh, we can all uh, live in a very comfortable physical environment. Isaiah 35, 35.1 says, the wilderness and the desert will be glad and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy as it personifies just the, the profusion of, uh, 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 of nature as it is so fruitful. The deserts will bring forth everything. It will be a phenomenal scene. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon they will see the glory of Yahweh, the majesty of our God. So even places like the Sahara Desert will be wonderful farmland. Just imagine. Remember, overpopulation is not that there are too many people. Overpopulation is a function of, t- of bad technology and, uh, and a harmful environment. So there are certain areas on the earth today where you just can't populate. They won't sustain a population. Uh, and deserts are one of those places. But during the millennial kingdom, because there will be perfect environment, 
I think that the population millennium may, may get to 50 or 60 billion on the planet because every place will be inhabitable. And there will not be this threat of overpopulation because the Lord controls the environment. Not, it's not a result of um, human technology that there's any kinds of destruction. In fact, a prof- professor of meteorology at MIT just published a paper where he demonstrates that the atmosphere functions like an iris so that as things begin to warm up, and incidentally, global warming only is occurring at the surface, there's no evidence of temperature change in the upper atmosphere at all. So what happens is is, as things warm up and cool down on the surface, there are self-correcting mechanisms in the atmosphere which allow it to self-correct once it gets to a certain point. So there's no threat of, of a global warming and all of the disasters that were announced in the last six months. And, and think about it. In the last six months, we've heard a couple of reports come out from meteorologists and scientists claiming that global warming is, is going to increase the temperature of the poles or the average temperature of the Earth by a couple of degrees. And the waters will go up, I mean, the level of the oceans will rise 10 to 15 feet. If that's true, if they really believe that, then they need to start now moving people away from the coastlands because that's going to inundate uh, a large majority of major metropolitan areas on the planet today. But you don't see anybody proposing that people in Miami start moving, people in uh, the Keys start moving, people in Hawaii start moving. All those places will be underwater if the ocean levels go up 10, 15, 20 feet. But no politician's doing that because they don't believe it either. It's just a political ploy, and people who don't know any better buy into it. There will be, uh, the environment curse will be rolled back, Isaiah 35, 1 and 2. Six, there will be abundant rainfall, Isaiah 30, 23, 24, and 35, 7. In Isaiah 35, 7 we read, And the scorched land will become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. And the haunt of jackals, its resting place. Grass becomes reeds and rushes. So the desert will indeed become a very moist place and a very fruitful place. Point seven, in in this time there will be an absence of sickness and genuine healing. There will be an absence of sickness and there will be genuine healing. Isaiah 35, 4 and 5 reads, Say to those with anxious heart, Take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. That's the second coming. The recompense of God will come, but He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. So it's a clear statement that there will be a... um, a time of healing and physical health around the world. Isaiah 35, 6 says, Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. See, this is why when Jesus was on the earth at the first advent, he was healing the blind and the cripple and, and those who were without sight and who couldn't hear and the dumb could speak is because he was fulfilling this prophecy. He was giving these credentials to the Jews that he was the Messiah so that they would turn, turn and accept him as Messiah. So Isaiah 35, 4 through 6 um, explains that this, the millennial kingdom will be a time uh, where sickness is rare and there will be genuine healing uh, at that, during that time from the Messiah. 
eighth point is that there will be hostility that, excuse me, the, the hostility amongst the animals will be reversed. What happened initially, there was peace in the animal kingdom. All the animals were gramnivorous. And then there was the curse and they gradually became carnivorous. And then with the Noahic covenant, remember that stated that God put fear for man into the animals. But this is going to be rolled back as seen in Isaiah 11, 6, and 7. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid. That's not a little boy. That's a young sheep, young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them, all of them. So you'll have a herd made up of, I don't know what they'll call it, because it's a den of wolves, and it's a flock of sheep, and it's a, I don't know what leopards, how leopards are grouped. But they'll all be together, wolves, lambs, leopards, kids, goats, calves, all together, and the little boy will lead them with no problem. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. Bears do not graze today. Just in case you don't know that, bears do not graze. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Now, that means that, once again, we're going to see this physiological change. The, the dental structure of the lions and the cheetahs and the leopards and the bears are going to be reversed. Their gastrointestinal systems are going to be changed so that they can digest uh, grass and straw. And ninth, it will be a time of increased prosperity and material blessing for all. Amos 9, 13, and 14. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine, and all the hills will be dissolved. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. So it is a time of abundance, material, physical prosperity. Well, this is a unique time, but along with that, there's a unique spiritual life in the millennium. A unique spiritual life in the millennium. We've seen nine points on the characteristics, and now I've got about six or seven points on the spiritual life of the millennial kingdom. First of all, Jesus Christ personally will be on the earth and will be the physical center of worship in the millennial kingdom. People will go to the mountain of God, to the temple in Israel, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ in his physical presence. It's not going to be the Shekinah glory. It's not going to be the pillar of fire. It's not going to be a cloud by day. It's going to be the physical Lord Jesus Christ in the temple. So people will go to Israel to worship him personally. It will be, second, it will be a time of unprecedented positive volition. A time of unprecedented positive volition. This is seen in Isaiah 11, verse 9, where we read, They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. I want you to note that. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So everyone will know about the Lord. A time of unprecedented spiritual growth and spiritual positive volition. 
First, Jesus Christ will be on the earth in the physical center of worship. Second, it will be a time of unprecedented positive volition, Isaiah 11.9. Third, Isaiah will be the priest nation for all the nations. They will serve as the priest nation, not just uh, the Levites. In fact, most Levites won't function. Only the um, only one group will function as priests, but the entire nation will serve as a priest nation because they will surround the millennial temple. And fourth, there will be miraculous demonstrations of the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit everywhere. It will be commonplace. All, many will prophesy and dream dreams and see visions. And it will be a time. These aren't ecstatic operations, though. Ecstasy is emotion. Never in all of the history of Revelation were dreams, visions, emotional. They might have produced emotion when Daniel saw his visions in Daniel 6, 7, 8, and 9. Usually he was exhausted afterwards and overwhelmed, but that was the response to what happened. It wasn't generated by emotion. He did not know this was coming. And uh, we know this from passages like uh, Isaiah 44, 3, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Ezekiel 39.29, I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord. And then Joel 2.28 tells us what that will look like. And it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, And even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So there will be miraculous demonstrations of the Holy Spirit that are commonplace. Fifth, the fourth temple, the millennial temple, will be constructed on Mount Zion. And all the world will go there to worship God. There will be this enormous mountain. And on top of that is the millennial temple. And all the world will go there to worship God. Now, there are four temples in human history. The first temple, described in 1 Kings 5 through 8, chapters 5 through 8, was Solomon's temple. And that was destroyed in 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, or the Neo-Babylonians, the Chaldeans. The second temple was constructed when Israel returned from the Babylonian captivity and they began construction in about 536 B.C., although they didn't finish until 516. And that was called Zerubbabel's Temple. Zerubbabel's Temple. And that was destroyed in 70 A.D. It was, re, um, it was rebuilt or it was um, strengthened and redesigned by Herod. But it was still the second temple. And that was destroyed in 70 A.D. when the Roman armies came in and destroyed Jerusalem. The third temple is the tribulation temple, and it is an apostate temple. But it has to be there, because for the abomination of desolation to take place, for the Antichrist to desecrate the Holy of Holies, there has to be a temple on the temple mount. Now, the present temple mount is not the future temple mount, but the present temple mount will be the site of this third temple, and it will be destroyed at the second coming of Christ. And then at, the, at his coming, he will build the fourth temple, which is greater than all of the temples. 
We see this in such passages as Isaiah 2, 2 and 3, which we've already read, where it talks about the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. There are some who interpret that to mean that it will be the highest of all the mountains on the earth, that there will be, just as there was at the flood, a reshaping of the topography of the earth so that the highest mountain on the earth will be the mountain of the Lord in Israel. Isaiah 56, 7 states, Even those I will bring to my holy mountain, referring to Gentiles, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the people. So all Gentiles will go to Israel. They will go to their worship of God through Israel, serving as that priest nation. And then Ezekiel 37 26 and 27, God states, And I will make a covenant of peace with them, that is, that restored generation, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst, and I will place them and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them. See, God always has a dwelling place. That's the function of a temple. It is a place where God dwells among the people. God dwelt in Eden. He placed... Adam and the woman in the garden east of Eden. Then God's presence stayed on the earth until the flood, still in Eden, but the flood destroyed that. Then he had a second presence on the earth during the temple, the first temple. And then as Shekinah glory left that, it was not there in Zerubbabel's temple, but it returned in the hypostatic union, the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he was had a physical presence on the earth. And then when Christ's physical body ascended to heaven, it was replaced ten days later by the body of the church who became the living stones of the new temple. And according to 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, we are the temple and we are the inhabitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He indwells each and every one of us. So there's always a dwelling place, but this will be the dwelling place in the, in the millennial kingdom. And then Ezekiel 37:28 states, And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Now, where will this sanctuary be? Well, here is a map of the tribal divisions in Israel during the tribulation. If you look at this, we're going to we see that here's the... Uh, river of Egypt here. This is not the Nile. Most scholars think this is a, a wadi somewhere down on the uh, Sinai Peninsula, and it is from there, the river of Egypt, all the way across to the Euphrates River that's the promised land. Now, most of that is land is made up now by modern states such as Jordan, just uh, east of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea, and Iraq and uh, part of Iran. Now, this is mostly Iraq and maybe some of Syria, Saudi Arabia over here. And all of that land is going to go to Israel. So they will indeed have oil at, in the Millennial Kingdom. And then they have these parallel tracts of land that go all the way across. These parallel tracts of land that go all the way across but it is right here in this section right here that you have this area of land that is set apart. It's called the Holy Oblation, the, the area of land that is set apart for the service 
of God and the priests and the Levites and the prince of God. And Jerusalem is down in this little section right here. This little square right here is where Jerusalem is located. Now, I have a little better picture of this to give us a little better idea. Um, here, this is a black and white map. And this has, this is the land. Um, here's the coastline along the Mediterranean. And then this is the, the land that's set aside for the temple. And you have this section here is given for the prince, that is for David. This section to the east, there's a section to the east and a section to the west given to the prince. And then this section here is blown up into this diagram. Now, you can't read that very well. And if you can, then uh, you've got incredible eyes. So we'll blow it up a little bit. There we go. And we'll look at that. This is the prince's portion. And it's, it's about uh, eight and a half miles by eight and a half miles. And you have the top third. It's divided into three equal parallel sections. The top third belongs to the Levites. The middle section belongs to the priests. And they surround the temple itself, which is about a mile square right in the middle. And then the lower third section is divided into three sections. The middle section for Jerusalem and then the section on each side just for the inhabitants of the city. So that is a picture of the side, this, this enormous piece of real estate on the mountain of God in the middle of Jerusalem. Now this is a chart of what the temple will look like. Remember, it is approximately, um, these dimensions are a little different. Scholars differ as to, depending on the length of the cubit and a lot of other things that I don't want to get into because it gets technical and there's a tremendous amount of disagreement. But I think most scholars think take it's about a mile square, so it is enormous. And this is surrounded by an outer wall that is filled with uh, chambers or cubicles where the priests will stay. These are all of their apartments in the outer walls. Then there are uh, kitchens located here in the corners, K, indicated by a K, and there's an entry gate. And then surrounding the temple itself, there's the outer court. And then here is the temple itself, uh, the temple precincts, the inner court, and then this black section here in the middle is the temple itself. And here you have the... the um, Here's the altar, then you go in, and this room here with the T in the middle of it is the uh, holy place, and then in here is the holy of holies. We'll get a little better look of that. Uh, this is the gate to the millennium, and it's quite large. It's about 45 uh, feet, or almost 50 feet wide, and about 90 feet long, and this is the gateway. Now... This is going back to our picture. Here's the gate here and another gate here. And that's how, that's, um, that's how large it is. And th these are all uh, guard rooms. These square chambers on each side are for the guards. And then this is the portico or entryway before you go into the temple itself. Here's the other picture of the temple. So you come through that gateway and then you're in the inner court where you come to the large millennial altar. The large millennial altar is about 32 feet, 31 and a half feet by 31 and a half feet. And it is approximately 19 and a quarter feet tall 
and you walk up a series, the priest would walk up a series of steps and then perform the sacrifices on top of the altar itself, which is a surface 21 feet by 21 feet. That is where the millennial sacrifices will take place. And then, so that's in this outer court here in this area. And then you would go from there into the temple proper itself. And that, uh, looking at it sideways from the top, you would enter, remember, the, the, to the left. As you're looking at it, the left is facing east, and you're moving west. And you have your, your two inner chambers, the Holy of Holies here, the outer sanctuary, and then the inner sanctuary here, the Holy of Holies. So that's what the Millennial Temple... It's going to be impressive. We will be overwhelmed with its beauty. There's nothing like it anywhere on earth today. Now, we're told as to point six under the uh, spiritual life in the millennium that Jesus Christ will be the originator and builder of the fourth temple. In Zechariah 6, 11 to 13, we read, Take silver and gold. And make an, this, is, um, this is God talking to uh, Joshua in reference to the ordination of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, when they return from the land, but Joshua stands as a type of Christ when he returns at the second coming. They're told at that time, this is in past history, take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold a man whose name is Branch. Branch is a title for the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is representing the Lord Jesus Christ, and what the Lord Jesus Christ will do in the millennium. Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. That's in reference to the future coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne. Jesus Christ, the royal king priest, will be a priest on his throne in the council of peace, will be between the two offices. Now, there will be a return to literal sacrifices in the millennium. And I think I better stop here. I had a tremendous insight as I went through this. It's funny how things work sometimes. But you go through here, and I suddenly realized that even in the millennial temple, there are going to be sacrifices. Now, they're not for atonement. I want to come back and spend a little more time on it next time. But they're for the purpose of cleansing for the priest. Throughout history, any time a priest has to go into the presence of God, there has to be a sacrifice for cleansing. Think about it. In the Old Testament, the priest offered a sacrifice for cleansing. It's not atonement. That's Christ. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. But it is for ceremonial cleansing. Now, in the church age today, where's the temple? We're the temple. Who's the priest? We're the priest. So every time we sin, before we can go into the presence of God, there has to be cleansing. Now, we've been studying in 1 John chapter 1 about the importance of confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9. And over and over again, people will raise the question, why is it that you emphasize confession of sin when 1 John 1, 9 seems to be the only passage that mentions it? It's not even commanded anywhere. It's really given more as a description. Why is it? 
And see, what we've done is we've keyed in on the word confession as the main concept in 1 John 1, 9, and we make an issue out of that. But confession isn't the issue. The issue is cleansing. And we see cleansing emphasized over and over and over again in the New Testament. First John, I mean, 1 Corinthians 5, 5, you have to clean out the old leaven to make room for the new because Christ has been your Passover in 1 Corinthians 5, 5 through 7. You have to examine yourself before you come to the Lord's table for cleansing in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, James chapter 4 talks about the fact, wash your hands, your sinners, and cleanse your hearts. Once again, the idea of cleaning. So, katharizo, the verb which means to cleanse or purify, is the, that, that's the key idea. It's not confession. Confession is how you get the cleansing. But the point is that the priest has to be cleansed before he can go into the presence of God. So, in every dispensation, there is a procedure for cleansing. And in the Mosaic system and in the Millennial system, it's through animal sacrifices. And in the church age, it's through the use of 1 John 1, 9. And there is no uh, animal sacrifice during this dispensation. So next time we'll start with the uh, sacrifices in the millennium and proceed to wrap up the millennium and get into the eternal state with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word to understand these things and to realize what a tremendous uh, thing will occur in the millennial kingdom and how marvelous things will be in this perfect environment with our Lord ruling and reigning on the earth and as the center point of worship when the whole earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord. Father, we look forward to that as we will be participating with the Lord as heirs of the kingdom if we uh, endure and suffer with our Lord, becoming joint heirs with our Lord Jesus Christ, that we too might glorify you and be uh, those who rule and reign with him in the kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.